This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting April 18th, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk with Atul Gawande about his new book, Better, a surgeon's notes on performance. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Atul Gawande and the science of performance. How do you get better at something without breakthroughs or new knowledge, but just by analyzing what you already know and do and figuring out ways to do it better? Atul Gawande is a general surgeon at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, a frequent contributor to the New England Journal of Medicine, and a staff writer at the New Yorker. Last year, he received a MacArthur Fellowship, sometimes called a Genius Grant. He was in New York last week, and I met with him in the lobby of the Roger Williams Hotel on Madison Avenue. Dr. Gawande, great to talk to you today. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. You're a surgeon and a writer. What's your general background? I know your dad was a doctor, too, from reading the book. My parents are from India, but I was born and raised here. Um, and I always knew I would end up one way or another in medicine, though, for a long time. I tried to avoid it by working in government. I was in the Clinton administration doing health policy. I um, uh, floated around in, in uh, uh, different kinds of uh, labs. But where I ended up was as a surgeon. And um, my first book was written during my surgical training. Uh, it was called Complications. And it was trying to think about why is medicine imperfect? And how do you learn something? How do you learn to be good at something that is imperfect? Uh, and this now tries to take off from there. And the title of the book is Better, so not just how you learn, but how do you actually get better once you have learned. Yeah, so I'm a general surgeon at the Brigham Women's Hospital uh, in Boston, uh, and I only joined the faculty about three years ago. When I joined, the puzzle was no longer how do you become competent at something like medicine. The puzzle became what's the difference between people who are merely competent and those who are great at what they do in medicine. And one of the really surprising things in the book is that the answer to that is often, I mean, your whole first section is called diligence. And the answer to that is, is so often just paying attention to details. It's, you know, it's not huge medical breakthroughs. It's not incredible leaps of knowledge. It's just doing the things you already know how to do, but very carefully and better. Yeah, the um, the striking thing that I found about looking at institutions that were at the top of their bell curve, whether it was cystic fibrosis or how the uh, surgeons were saving soldiers out in uh, on the battlefield, um, it wasn't that they were smarter than anybody else. It was that they understood what it meant to be fallible. They were willing to recognize their fallibility and then try to overcome it. And so I sort of deliberately start the book with a really mundane story, which is about hand-washing. Um, here's a problem where two million people just in the United States uh, who come into a hospital will leave it with, an, with a bacteria that, uh, that they didn't have before. Um, and that's because of a failure of hand-washing. 90,000 people die as a consequence of infections they pick up in the hospital. Um, now, what does it mean to be good at hand-washing? It doesn't mean that you scrub extra hard or 
you're really like the world expert on getting the stuff from out under your nails. Um, it means that if you have to wash your hands a hundred times in a day, that you will do it a hundred times in a day, not 90 times, not 40 times. And understanding what it means to be diligent day in, day out is a capacity that we don't think much about in medicine, but turns out to be hugely important in uh, determining whether people live or die. You, in the cystic fibrosis section of the book, you uh, profile a doctor who is explaining to one of his patients that the difference between feeling good 99.5 and 99.95% of the time on any given day works out to completely different outcomes over the course of a year. You want to talk about that a little? Yeah. Warren Warwick is the director of a program in uh, Minneapolis that happens to get the best survival rates for cystic fibrosis in the country. Way better than other places. The average survival is 33 years in the 117 cystic fibrosis centers we have, and his survival is 47 years for, for his whole team of doctors and nurses and social workers. Well, I didn't understand what was different about that place, and my thought was, well, they must have a different technology. But it turned out they were following the same guidelines that everybody else follows. They were participating in the same clinical trials. Um, instead, it turned out to be a combination of um, a few attributes that I didn't see until I went to clinic with him and visited um, and watched him just take care of patients. And with this one patient who was a teenager who had simply stopped taking her treatments, what he recognized was that she wasn't taking her treatments because she felt well. You stop taking the treatments, and 99.5% of the time, a cystic fibrosis patient on any given day will be fine. The treatments, he said, add a little bit. They make it so you're 99.95% uh, uh, likely to make it through the day just fine. In other words, for the average person, they can't tell the difference on any given day. They basically have a 100% chance of being well. But um, then he chalked out the calculations on board. And it was the difference between an 83% chance of making it through the year without ending up sick in the, and in the hospital and only a 14% chance. And what he does every day is set about trying to find that little margin of difference because that's the margin that allows his patients to do extraordinarily well. And so with that patient Janelle, it meant figuring out that she had a new boyfriend. <laughs> she wanted to spend time with him, not time at home uh, with getting her treatments. And uh, and that also the school had a new rule that the nurses had to provide the medications, and she didn't want to go over to the nurse three times a day. So he had a couple of things. He uh, had her move some of her uh, treatment stuff to her boyfriend's apartment, <laughs> and he uh, told her to carry her meds around in her pocket and take it even if the nurse didn't tell her to. And it was a fabulous move. It was one that turned her taking care of herself into an act of rebellion <laughs> against the school. It's just got to appeal to a teenage girl. Exactly. And he thought about that not just on the patient level. He thought about it on the systematic level. And so every week he had a meeting with all of his doctors, and he'd ask them, go through all of your patients with me and tell me what you did. And that allowed a level of consistency and reliability for every patient who came into that institution, that they had a whole team of people behind the decision-making of one doctor and not just that lone doctor. Let's talk about the Iraq section of the book. I had no idea about the, the medical care going on in Iraq and how, again, there's no great uh, technological breakthrough. It's, it's entirely a systems approach 
that has reduced the mortality rate incredibly significantly. So let's talk about that. Well, so what I thought about the, when I thought about what was the, what's been happening to military care of uh, wounded soldiers over the last century, um, what I puzzled over was how do we make progress? Since the Korean War, right through the Persian Gulf War One, the death rate for a soldier wounded in the battlefield has been about 25%. The, the military, of course, and the country as a whole, wanted to figure out how do we lower that death rate. So the logical thing you do in science is you try to find new discoveries. They invested half a billion dollars in technologies like developing freeze-dried blood or or uh, blood substitutes for um, easier transfusion and transport or making miniaturized uh, equipment to try to monitor the heart rate of, of soldiers. Well, none of this was what turned out to make the difference. Um, the survival rate for soldiers wounded in Iraq right now is um, over 90%. That is, less than 10% are dying of their wounds. It's a massive improvement just over the last decade and a half. And the way they did that was instead by relatively mundane-seeming things. They looked at the data from their trauma registries and found, for example, that soldiers were arriving in the emergency, in the uh, in the in the wards um, without their Kevlar on. They were not wearing their Kevlar. So they held the commanders responsible for making sure the soldiers wore their Kevlar. It didn't matter if it was 110 degrees outside or they complained about the 16 pounds of weight of the, of the, of the, uh, of the Kevlar. The Kevlar protected their heart and their lungs and their abdominal organs when a blaster would go off or they get shot. And that bought them time. There were other critical steps. For example, they recognized that the soldiers that were wounded weren't getting to operating tables fast enough. And so they moved the surgical, um, care right onto the battlefield. That means you had to strip it down. You actually had to take technology away. They got rid of x-rays, for example, and the orthopedic surgeons would try to figure out where the fractures were purely by feel. But by putting them at the bedside, at the battlefield side, uh, doing whatever they could with five backpacks of equipment, um, it allowed them to do operations that were short but incredibly effective in saving lives. And how they did that and how they thought about that is a kind of science. It's a science of performance, and it's one we're not used to thinking about or paying attention to. But our world has changed. Medical care now, compared to a half a century ago, we have thousands of things we can do to help people. There's enormous amounts of know-how and capability, and we haven't thought hard about how we use our existing know-how um, to produce better results. Yeah, one of the amazing things is that... Uh, Battlefield wounded soldiers and Marines may be shipped all the way back to the U.S. basically with their bellies still open. Yeah, so one of the things, you know, one of my uh, colleagues who trained with me uh, was a surgeon who led uh, the first team into Afghan, first medical team into Afghanistan and the first, and one of the first medical teams in Iraq. And, um, and he described a process where because they were short on equipment at the battlefield side, there's only so much you can carry with you from place to place, um, they had to limit the operations to two hours. They would do what they could to stop bleeding. If they had to do an amputation, they did an amputation. If there was a hole in the bowel, they'd staple it off. But they wouldn't try to put everything back together. They'd leave the, the soldier asleep. Um, on the breathing machine, paralyzed, the abdomen may be still left open. They pull a plastic sterile drape over it. They tack a note on top uh, and send them off to Baghdad. And the note would say, here's what we did. Please finish. 
the um, folks in Baghdad then would continue the operation, either finish it up or do what they could, and then they'd get shipped onto Landstuhl, Germany, and then onto Walter Reed. And the average transport time for a soldier from battlefield wound to Walter Reed is now under three days. And that is an incredibly sophisticated approach, a real change in the way we think about um, how you make sure someone gets well. Uh, it is a, a team approach, and it's worked unbelievably in this war. And part of the lesson is thinking in ter- terms of teams, but the even larger lesson is the one that says if if we have to only rest on new discovery and we never look to see how we get that discovery to the bedside, we will miss major opportunities to save lives. They cut the death rate from 25% to under 10% under, you know, horrendous conditions. Um, and you can imagine what we could be capable of here at home. Yeah, with existing technology or, as you said, with actually less technology, just with a systems approach. Yeah, sometimes uh, there are times when our technology gets in the way, and the key step is being able to simply and reliably do what we know how to do. Um, we can add a flourish with a technology that can fine-tune a situation for one out of a hundred people, you know, some some special problem that comes in on a rare occasion. But then if it makes it harder to do the care for the 99 out of 100, we might make things worse. And we don't see those patterns. We aren't following those patterns. You know, the interesting thing about the military just is that within 48 hours, you'll know if a wounded soldier lived or died uh, and what has happened to him. And you, you know about it on the web. You don't have anything like that about American civilian care. Uh, and as a result, we ourselves in medicine and surgery don't see the patterns of when we succeed and when we fail. Let's talk about the middle section of the book is, is really an examination of, of morality in a lot of medical situations. You have this one fascinating section about, uh, within that middle section about, uh, doctors or other medical personnel who take part in executions. Yeah. So one of the things I wondered about was what is, how do doctors actually make moral choices? And so I talked to four doctors and a nurse who participate in executions. They ranged from what I would call a kind of morally inept uh, level of decision-making from one person who simply didn't realize that they were being asked a question that had moral consequences to a kind of legal, officialistic kind of thinking that said, oh boy, this is a, uh, this is a, a difficult situation. Let me call up the board of uh, medicine and find out what the rules are to I thought what the most sophisticated level was uh, one of the doctors who participated was a uh, is a um, is against the death penalty but he thought right through the problem he was faced with he observed a couple of executions before he gave any kind of answer and he felt that you know if people are going to be executed and that's not going to be stopped that he would help to make sure that this person doesn't suffer. And he felt it was a humane responsibility. Now, this is against our ethics codes, and he went against the ethics codes. There was something admirable, I thought, in the way he thought through it. I also happened to completely disagree with him, um, in part because I think he was wrong to think that it is completely inevitable that um, 
that participating in executions, uh, or that, that executions are just, uh, going to happen and that the doctor's role is simply to relieve suffering. The doctor's role here is to execute. And that's become more and more clear. And in the last year, as it's become more apparent, uh, and physicians have been unwilling to participate and, and, uh, and help produce the execution, um, we've had a, a real plummet in the number of executions being carried out. Let's quickly talk uh, about the third section of the book called Ingenuity. You spent a fascinating six weeks, I think it was, in India. Yeah. Before it was about eight, it was about two and a half months actually. Two and a half months, but prior to your uh, taking on your own full life as a surgeon. Yeah, when when I finished my training three years ago, that was one of the few moments you get where you can disappear for a period of time because you don't have a whole built up practice that you might drop. Um, and so I I did just that. I I went to India for two and a half months doing surgery uh, in a series of eight hospitals across uh, the country partly just trying to get a glimpse of, you know, in, in a world which only has $20 per person per year, uh, and yet longevity has reached the point that there is um, a lot of illness that requires surgery, cancer, trauma. Um, what I didn't understand is how they could possibly live and survive and function as doctors and surgeons there, and I just wanted to see how they did it. And how they do it is amazing. The... Uh I mean, the section is called ingenuity, just the things they come up with to, and, and the, the range of surgical procedures that any one doctor will perform. Yeah. Part of what I've found fascinating and, 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 uh, and a story to tell in this book was that these were doctors who were surrounded by a chaotic, dysfunctional, failing system. And there was only so much they could do about it. They were often demoralized, but they came into work every day with a recognition that there were some things that they could do. And what they learned to do, uh, they had a kind of natural bedside ingenuity that they came to um, by thinking about how do you take what you know and you've been trained as, as world-class treatment and how do you get that to the bedside. And so you saw things like uh, cases like a, a woman coming in with a breast cancer and there is no oncologist. There are no treatment infusion rooms where you can put central lines in and give um, uh, the chemotherapy. But they could get the chemotherapies on the gray market. That's uh, where there are pirated versions of the key drugs that you need in India. Um, they uh, made sure that they found ways to get the medications to the women using uh, all kinds of ingenious ways to, to work around the limits of their resources. Um, and then they would learn to do things that, that would never occur to me. I, mean, I, I wouldn't know the first thing about how to give it a um, cancer uh, treatment safely. I'd turn to oncologists for that, but they learned how to do that. And then on top of it, they uh, learned how to work old cobalt-60 radiation machines that were used in the 50s and 60s here so that they could get radiation treatment. They recognize that what they have to be committed to is not new discovery um, because there are discoveries, huge numbers of discoveries that they're simply not using. Uh, and they've made it part of their science, an individual science, and I'm not sure they recognize it's a science, but a key skill of a doctor there is that kind of bedside ingenuity. And uh, when we think about what we do here, I think it has the same layers, the same levels of possibility. We just haven't quite recognized it. 
we have uh, maybe a, a a wealth of options that that blinds us to those kinds of opportunities sometimes. Yeah, part of it is that medicine has changed so drastically. In India, they're used to the fact that discoveries are elsewhere and you try to figure out how to use them. Here, we imagine, because we produce so many of the discoveries, we imagine that once something is discovered, why the machine takes over and simply puts them into practice. But now there are so many thousands of discoveries, hundreds of new ones that come out each year that can genuinely benefit people, that we almost have an overload of discovery. (laughs) We can't process it. We can't bring it to the bedside in a country where we have 700,000 physicians and trying to take care of 300 million people. Um, uh, how to make it so that uh, that care actually gets from idea to delivery is a science of a kind. And there are certain people who I try to describe in the book who have shown or um, uh, created some of that science uh, uh, that demonstrates how it can be done. I'm just personally curious, how does somebody carry on a full-time uh, surgical career and be basically a full-time writer at the same time? It, it's not, it's not very easy. <laughs> and, uh, and it, and it falls apart all the time. I mean, the writing ends up having to take, uh, the back seat to the surgical care. I should hope so. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, in the last year, I produced one article for the New Yorker where I normally produce three to four. Um, and this book was about six months late in getting done, and that's just the way it has to be. But I do say, you know, that one of the key attributes of of um, being what I call the positive deviant <laughs> is um, that the, the, the successful f- folks that I watched wrote something. Um, it wasn't that they were writing a book or that they were writing a uh, uh, a research paper every month. Sometimes it would be just one uh, paper, or it might be a newsletter, or it might be a blog, but they were contributing in some way to throwing an idea out, an observation they had made about the world, and then seeing what people had to say about it. I think uh, one of the things about writing is you can clarify your own thoughts to a point that you maybe had not appreciated before if you take the time to write something about what you're thinking. And there's a great quote, I think it was from Scotty Reston, uh, former New York Times editor many years ago, who said something like, how do I know what I think until I've read what I wrote? My writing, I feel like it helps, no question, my thinking. It, um, I run a lab where we do work on um, public health problems, and um, it struck me the number of ideas that have come from simply writing about a story here. Um, one of the, one of the uh, essays here is about a woman named Virginia Apgar who invented the Apgar score for obstetrics. And I realized, you know, why... That, that score has transformed obstetrics. It's given them a way to know if, in, a, in an objective way whether a child is healthy or not. And all and, it is is you look at the baby when it's born and you assign various scores. Or whether it's blue or pink or wh- how it's breathing and so on. And, um, and, I want, and I realized, you know, that that's been around for 50 years. It's really helped obstetrics. Why don't we have that for psychiatry? Uh, why don't we have that for surgery to see how to grade, really, how well has a patient made it through an operation. And that led our lab to start working on exactly that problem. Um, and that was an idea that wouldn't have come about until I'd written about the problem, and, and that forced me to think through, what was it that they did in obstetrics that made it so much safer over time and in a way that we hadn't accomplished in surgery? 
Dr. Gawande, great to talk to you. The book is called Better, and I, I really enjoyed it, and thanks for your time today. You're great to take the time. Thank you. Atul Gawande will be signing books all around the country over the next few weeks, including appearances in D.C., Detroit, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and Newton, Massachusetts. He'll deliver the commencement address at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School in Philadelphia on May 14th. For a complete list of appearances, places, and times, just Google Atul Gawande, that's G-A-W-A-N-D-E, and 2007 Book Tour, or see the link in the description of this podcast on the Siam podcast page, www.siam.com slash podcast. Speaking of Philadelphia, the Franklin Institute gives out its awards recognizing achievements in science and technology next Thursday, April 26th. Honorees include astronomer Steve Squires, who appeared on this podcast April 12th, 2006. We have a segment about the awards scheduled for next week's show, but there are public events starting Monday in Philadelphia that may be of interest, including sessions with the scientists for young people. For more info, just Google Franklin Awards and hit the link on the left for 2007 Awards Week schedule. Speaking of awards, our podcast efforts have been nominated for something called a Webby, which the New York Times has called the Oscars of the Internet, and which I'm going to call the Nobel Prizes of the Series of Tubes. But anyway, we're up against some high-power competition, including the NPR podcasts and the Onion podcast. You can vote for the Siam podcast, or the other ones if you're so inclined, by going to www.webbyawards.com and then navigating over to the podcast category. Couple more notes. On the baseball show of April 4th, I talked briefly about Tommy John elbow surgery that about 10% of all current major league pitchers have undergone. I happen to catch an excellent report on Tommy John surgery in kids as young as little league age on the new edition of HBO's Real Sports with Bryant Gumble. That episode is going to be repeated a few dozen times on various HBO channels over the next couple of weeks. Just go to hbo.com slash real sports to find the time and channel. And Atul Gawande's book, Better, had Amazon sales rank number 127 when I checked Tuesday. If you go down only about 380,000 places, you get to my book, which just came out. It's called Anti-Gravity, and it's a collection of my anti-gravity columns that have appeared in Scientific American Magazine for about 11 years now. Again, the book is Anti-Gravity by, shockingly enough, me. Okay, enough self-promotion. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, regular consumers of the Daily Show and the Colbert Report ranked the highest in their knowledge of current events, according to a new survey. Story two, Stephen Hawking will experience weightlessness aboard a zero-gravity flight next week. Story three, injuries involving nail guns have tripled since 1991. And story four, New York City is responsible for 1% of the world's greenhouse gas. Gas emissions. Time's up. Story one is true. Those who regularly watch The Daily Show and The Colbert Report rank the highest, along with readers of major newspaper websites. In a survey about knowledge of current events done by the Pew Research Center for the People and the Press, other knowledgeable people were the audiences for PBS's NewsHour, NPR, Rush Limbaugh, and news magazines. Regular viewers of other TV news programs were significantly less well-informed. Story two is true. On April 26th, Stephen Hawking is getting a ride on the so-called Vomit Comet, the parabolic flight of which will make him virtually weightless for a few seconds. His next book will therefore be A Brief History of Lunch. 
And story three is true. Injuries involving nail guns are up threefold since 1991 to about 15,000 emergency room visits per year due to nail gun wounds. Increasing home handymanning seems to be the cause. For more, check out the April 16th edition of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story four about New York City being responsible for 1% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions is totally bogus. In fact, New York is responsible for 1% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions despite having about 2.5% of the country's population. That's according to a New York Times article cited in the April 11th entry of the Siam blog, and that blog entry is called The Greenest Place in America. It's over at blog.siam.com. Cities in general are actually pretty green, mostly because the dense buildings are energy efficient and the vast majority of all trips are on foot or mass transit or bicycle. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. The daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. And you can vote for us at webbyawards.com. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.